just because Jabu didn't do it, um, missed out, must have been off his mind. Um, we are glad to have Mark and his family here with us for the first evening service uh, of this year and the first evening service with Mark uh, being at our church and joining our pastoral team. And so uh, we are glad to have you, glad that you are here um, and very grateful that you're joining us. And so um, I pray that you really would be very welcoming to them. Uh, come and greet them, get to know them. They're going to be here for a while, so you might as well uh, stick around. Um, but it's glad to have you here and uh, I'm glad to see everyone here, starting off the new year, uh, coming to again see what God has for us in store for another year. We're going to be in Matthew 5 this evening, so if you would turn there, uh, we will start from verse 13. Um, And so you can so long turn your Bibles there as we get into the start of the sermon. Uh, I saw a meme uh, just before New Year's, and, and the meme said as follows. It says, I'm staying up till midnight on New Year's Eve. Not to welcome the new year in, but to make sure that the old one left. I think that the most common theme to the end of 2021 has been, thank goodness it's over. With many saying, I just hope that this year is better than the last. I think I myself might have said that phrase approximately 50 times towards the end of last year, and I think Jabu and some of the others got sick of it, um, but, but it stuck me with this question. It stuck me with a, a question that forms a, a very solid basis for tonight's message. What does it mean to have a good year? What does it mean to have a good year? I mean, we can all identify with some bad stuff that may have have happened or a job that we got or lost or kids had, but are are these the things, are these the criteria that Christians ought to look at their lives for when they decide whether they have had a good year? And so in search of the answer to that question, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 16, reading from verse 13, which reads as follows. Now... When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? 16. Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned And said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 25. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Let us close our eyes and pray. Church, I'd like to ask you tonight just to start off praying for yourselves. Praying that God would use me, that the word would speak to you, that you would be listening with open ears and an attentive mind and heart. And then church, I'd like to ask you to pray for me. Pray that God would use me, that I would speak only what he gives and that his spirit would be speaking to me in this moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to hear from you. I pray, Lord, tonight that we would hear from you and that your spirit would work in each of us to learn from what you have to tell us. Pray this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I can remember when I was in high school, we went on a hike, well, a hike slash camp, uh, and we had a competition. You had to go out, you were given a map, and you had to go find certain numbers all around the campsite. And it was a huge campsite. And the team that came back with the highest score at the end would win the competition. And so being an all-boys school, we were very competitive. And so we decided we're going to go. We're going to run. We're just going to hit the path running. We'll figure it out as we go. So we start off hot. We hit the first number. We hit the second one. We're going. We, we're really steaming through. We, we're really making good use. And suddenly, we can't seem to find our next point. We search and we search, we go up the path, down the path. We think there must be a mistake. There's no way that this point is where we think it is. Turns out we've tried to find our way back. We take half an hour to go back. And we realize that what we've done is we've taken and we looked on the map and we'd mistaken a certain tree that we'd seen in front of us for a certain tree on the map. And we, we got this wrong and we, we had an incorrect reference point because that tree is what told us where we should go, and we had an incorrect reference point, then we had a poor outcome, and unfortunately, we lost the competition. And so I think us as disciples, and the disciples here, have, have an incorrect reference point of the Christ. Well, how do we know that the disciples in this passage have an incorrect reference of who the Christ is? Well, we see in verse 16, Peter goes and, and he confesses and he says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We think, look, this is going good. He, he's doing well. Peter's really getting off to a good start. And Jesus himself affirms that this is correct. 
he goes and he tells Peter that he is blessed of God for receiving this revelation. He's even given a reward that he would initiate the church and he would preach the law and the gospel. Looks like Peter's going well. He's, he's in a good direction. He started off, he's going. Till Jesus starts to begin to describe what the Christ needs to do. And so Peter goes and he says, Jesus is can't be. So Peter starts to rebuke him. He says, Lord, this simply cannot be true. There is no way this is true. What you're describing must be a lie. This cannot be what you think. And so we see Jesus' response in verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. I mean, whoa, that's, that's quite the sharp change. Within four verses, Peter is taken from the rock to Satan. How did we end up in such a different place? How did we end up in such a different place from where we began? Well, verse 23 continues. Jesus says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter's point of reference, and Peter stands as a representative here for the apostles, Peter's point of reference is himself or themselves and not God. He's seeing it from his own point of view and not God's point of view. You see, when your point of reference is off, when you have that wrong point of with which you, which you see everything else, then everything else will be off. And so when you put that first brick and you're trying to make a wall and that first brick is skew, the whole wall will be skew. We turn then to our first brick for the evening. My first point for tonight, our reference, the crucified Christ. The crucified Christ. You see, we are prone to forget who God is, who Christ is, and why Christ came. And when I say forget, I don't often think that we forget it in our memories as if it's disappeared, but I think we forget it in the sense that it loses all bearing upon our lives. It becomes a mantra which we repeat, yes, Jesus is the Christ, yes, Jesus died. But we forget that actual bearing it has on our lives. And so tonight's text is a self-check. It is a check to see, do we have the correct reference point off of which we live and off of which we see everything else? And so the first area that this text challenges us is the correct Christ. You see, the Jews had this idea of the Christ. The Christ was going to come. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. He is going to go and unify all the tribes, bringing them together. He's going to create peace among men, a bunch of other things. But this was the idea they had of Christ. He's going to be an overthrower. He's going to be a victorious conqueror that's going to remove their oppression. And so it's a shock to them when in verse 21, Jesus says, I will go and suffer and die. I can almost hear them thinking, but Jesus, we followed you for years. We followed you. Why would you come just to die? It makes no sense. Surely this cannot be right. And there's further shock even added because it is not that he would suffer and be persecuted under the Romans. It says that he would come and suffer under the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Why would a Jewish Messiah 
be killed by Jews. I think that despite Peter's great profession that Jesus is the Christ, he missed the boat. Friends, I want to be clear that profession itself of Jesus Christ or Lord does not guarantee a correct conception of what that means. I want to repeat that because you can miss that. Is I want to be clear that the profession itself of Jesus as Christ or Lord does not guarantee a correct conception of what that means. We see in James 2.13 that even the demons believe and shudder. For that then to come in line, for us to understand who the correct Christ is, we need to challenge our reference of the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Christ, our second point, sub-point for tonight. You see, the disciples could not comprehend the crucifixion. And I think each of us, if, if we cannot get that foundation right, if we are, do not understand what happened, that Jesus came, lived, and died, we will be in deep, deep trouble. For some of us, it's because we never understood this message. For some of us, it might be that, that we were told but it never stuck. For some of us, we were never told. But for some of us, it has just lost its significance with repeated sayings of what it is. We, we, if we lose this, if we lose the crucifixion of Christ, then we lose our ability to measure and to account our lives. And so to avoid taking the wrong turn at the start of faith and ending up in the wrong place, I want to go and look at verse 21 and break it down a bit. Verse 21 says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. This verse consists of four verbs, and I want to go through and focus on each of these four verbs. The first of these verbs is go. Go. You see, Jesus goes not as an unwilling victim, not as someone who's been tied up and taken against their will. He is a willing sacrifice. You see, this happens a while before he even enters into Jerusalem. And so he is a willing sacrifice. He says, I need to go to Jerusalem. It is his decision to end up on that cross. You see, some people will say that, that it's cosmic child abuse, that Jesus would be punished for the sake of others. But church, it is so much greater than this. He chooses to lay down his life for the sake of those who deserve to lose theirs. That is you and me. Richard Hayes puts it this way. He says, Jesus' death on the cross is not an accident or an injustice that befell him. It is rather an act of sacrifice freely offered for the sake of God's people. Jesus himself affirms this in John 10 verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. But Jesus does not merely go, but he also goes to suffer. And so, 
even as I prepared this sermon, it's, it struck me. And, and I sat and I, I just appreciated what it meant. What it meant that Jesus had to suffer. You see, Jesus could come, had a quick death, and it seems in that he would have paid the price that we needed paid. But no, he comes and Jesus chooses to suffer. Why would Jesus choose to suffer? John Piper answers this question by saying, the Bible says he was raised not just after the bloodshedding, but by it. Not just after the bloodshedding, not just after the suffering, not just after he went to the cross, but by each of those things. Peter himself would later elaborate, elaborate in 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He himself bore our sins on, in his body on the tree. And listen for the reasons why he bore our sins. That he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. By his wounds you are healed. Each lash, him being mocked as king, the thorns that were driven into his head, the nails smashed into his feet, the hours spent struggling for breath are each for the sake of you who actually deserves it. Believers are healed through his suffering. A commentator emphasizes, Jesus suffered and died in order to secure salvation for all who would believe. The night of his arrest as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane he committed his all to the task. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. The cup of suffering was not taken from the Christ. He drank, sorry, the cup of suffering was not taken from Christ. He drank it all for us. He drank it all for us. There was no other way for us to be saved. There was no other way apart from him going to Jerusalem and suffering for us to be saved. But it's not only his intention to meet the requirements of suffering, but also to be killed. Jesus' humiliation that started in his incarnation as a baby is finished upon the cross with us having nailed him there, that we would have peace and he would be given glory. His lifeblood in exchange for ours. Because what was necessary was not a governmental overthrow. It was not the removal of the Romans. It, it, what was necessary was not just leadership into the good life. How do I be a good person? What was necessary was an atoning sacrifice. My cousin told a story this weekend where they had to wash out her intestines after she had had her appendix burst and sepsis had set in. She described how the doctors had to scour down and rub clean all the muck that had gotten stuck there. It took a deep clean to remove all the dirt in her belly. You see, only the death of God in the flesh would be able to cleanse the filth accumulated by our souls when we sin and to restore us to peace with him who he could rightly and justly condemn to hell. 
Jesus died. Have you ever sat with this? Thought about it? I know we say it often, but Jesus died. God was murdered. An innocent man was killed. The only portion then of this that Jesus describes that offers us with any hope is that he is also to be raised. I can so know better than Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 to 57, when it comes to what would be accomplished through Jesus' death and his resurrection. And when we have a true conception of who Christ is, rather than a conception of what Peter and the apostles had him to be. So 1 Corinthians 15 reads, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Go, suffer, die, and be raised. This is our reference. This is what we ought to be looking towards. And then I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 10 from verse 24 to 25, which reads, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. And I want to keep focus. This is really where it hones in ourselves. It says, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We follow a crucified Christ. And the scriptures call us to become, as per my second point for tonight, crucified Christians. Crucified Christians. Reading from verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, we as Christians, we as the body of Christ, can expect no greater than our master who suffered and died. And our master calls us one step further. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross. I don't know how many of you, I didn't mention it at the start of the sermon, read my sermon title. Are you willing to die? Are you willing to die? I asked at the start of the sermon, what does it mean to have a good year? Does it mean to come out with more money than what you started with? Does it mean to have business success, to have friends, to have achieved everything you set out to achieve? Does it mean that there was little suffering or loss in your life? The Bible asks us to look at this year, 2022, in the light of Christ, in the light of Christ, and ask yourself that question, am I willing to die? It might not be the loss of your life, but are you willing to die to, die to your desires? Or are you willing to die to being happy and just living a happy life? Or are you willing to die to your aspirations, to your sins? You see, discipleship to Christ is not cheap. 
It's not cheap. It costs. Albert Barnes describes Jesus' call in this passage, and he says it this way. That is, let him, that is the Christian, surrender to God his will, his affections, his body, and his soul. Let him not seek his own happiness as the supreme object, but be willing to renounce all and lay down his life also, if required. Are you willing to lose your house, your friends, your social status, being with the in crowd? Are you willing to lose your dignity for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to go and and take the option of missions, which everyone says it's not for me, God hasn't gifted me, God hasn't called you. Are you willing to put that back on the table this year and say, God, are you calling me towards this? Are you willing to reduce your work hours or your income so you can spend more time ministering to your family or serving in the church? Are you willing to sell your television or downgrade the quality of your internet? Albert Barnes continues in his commentary and he says, to carry the cross was burdensome. It was disgraceful, was trying to the feelings was an addition to the punishment. So to carry the cross is a figurative expression denoting that we must endure whatever is burdensome or is trying or is considered disgraceful in following Christ. It consists simply in doing our duty. Let the people of the world think of it or speak of it as they may. It does not consist in making trouble for ourselves or doing things merely to be opposed. It is doing just what is required of us in the scriptures. Let it produce whatever shame, disgrace, or pain it may. This is what every follower of Jesus is required to do. I read an article this week, and it says, based on current research, the current generation coming up, their attention span will be shorter than a goldfish. Shorter than a goldfish. This is what the technology asks of us as it all seeks our attention, it all seeks to take from us. Are you willing to put these things away that you'd be able to focus on Christ and the call that he has placed upon your life? Are you willing to put these things away? Maybe to focus this in and maybe to ask yourself a personal question. What do I use to measure what a good year is. If you had to look back and we reached the end of this year, end of 2022, what are you going to use? What's the metric? What will decide whether you had a good year? And am I being like Peter with my mind set on the things of God? Or is my mind fixed upon worldly things? I want to challenge each of you to hear and take serious the words of Jesus. He does not approve of lukewarm Christianity. He doesn't approve of an I believe but I never live it out Christianity. Take this year to stop putting off being intentional in your faith. Take this year to actually take up the fight against sin and the devil. And take this year to commit yourself to reading God's word.
If you're not regular in the word, join what we advertised earlier. Let people hold you accountable, that you learn from God, that you'd hear from Him and what He has to say. John Calvin would describe this process of what we ought to do, and he expands. This self-denial is very extensive and implies that we ought to give up our natural inclinations and part with all the affections of the flesh and thus give our consent to be reduced to nothing, provided that God lives and reigns in us. We know with what blind love men naturally regard themselves, how much they are devoted to themselves, how highly they esteem themselves. But if we desire to enter the school of Christ, we must begin with that folly to which Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18 exhausts us. Becoming fools that we may be wise. And next, we must control and subdue all our affections. Jesus shows us by his life that we ought to be called away from self-aholism, this obsession with ourselves, self-pity, self-obsession, self-gratification, anything that starts and ends with you. And to begin with Christ, the crucified Christ. He goes and Jesus himself emphasizes, and, and we're going to close with the last two points. Jesus himself emphasizes with two statements what weight and gravity this takes. And so the first is he asks, for whoever would save, or says, he would, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, here we find the great paradox in Scripture. If your entire goal is to save yourself, and if your entire goal is to save yourself, in the end, in your attempt, you will be led to self-destruction. Why? Because it's all about you. The Christian life, dear friends, don't forget this, is a throwaway life. Every moment that you live without rejection, affliction, and death is complete and utter grace at the hand of God. Let us not forget that ours as the people of God is to be tossed into the garbage by this world. And there is no way to glamorize that. Jesus said, count the cost if you want to follow me. It will cost your life. And then Jesus gives the second image and he, and he moves to financial terms and he says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? He says almost a balance sheet of profits and loss and a pros and cons list that Jesus lays out before them. And so on the profit side, we see a house, a car, a good life, a good job, very few afflictions that we can find. Good friends, good status. I never get into bad trouble. But written in big and bold on the lost side, in big writing says, your soul. My question tonight is, does the profit outweigh the loss? Does that profit of gaining the world outweigh the loss of your soul? The world tells us we need different stuff to make our lives meaningful. We need to be a certain person and do certain things. 
But church, you've got it all wrong. All we need is Christ to have paid for our souls and we would have gained the world. All we would need is Christ to have paid for our souls and we would have gained the world. We can give nothing. None of that profit list is going to be able to buy your soul. And when we look at 2022 and we look at this year ahead of us, this should be our greatest concern. Is your soul the greatest concern in this coming year? And coming back to that question, are you willing to die? Our reference point ought to be, and I I want Dan, hopefully, to put up the the, the last slide of, of those four points of what Jesus did. That Christ was crucified. Christ went He suffered, he was killed, and he was raised again. And so as we look out this year, let us follow our master, the crucified Christ. Would we go? Would we be willing to suffer, to die to ourselves, and to live looking forward to the day when we shall be raised again with him to eternity? I came across a song uh, that I'm going to close out this, this sermon with, and It reads as follows. It says, While in thy light I stand, my heart I seem to see has failed to take from thine own hand the gifts it offers me. O Lord, thy plenteous grace, thy wisdom and thy power I here proclaim before thy face can keep me every hour. Upon the altar here I lay my treasure down I only want to have thee near, king of my heart, to crown. The fire doth surely burn my every selfish claim. And while from them to thee I turn, I trust in thy great name. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that as we look out to this year, God, God, as we think of this year ahead of us and as we put last year behind us, Lord, would we be willing to see things the way that you desire for us to see things? Father, would we be changed in our thinking not to look at things the way the world sees things? And Lord, I know that I so often get it wrong. God, I know that I am so much at fault for seeing things the wrong way. And Lord, would you forgive me, would you forgive each of us that have gone astray, each of us that have made this life about worldly things. And Lord, would you orientate our hearts towards you. Father, we know we cannot do without you. If it's in our own strength, we are sure to fail. Lord, would you be with us? Would you help us to see every moment, every day, every second, every hour, the crucified Christ to remind you that God, this world is not our own and neither are our lives. Lord, with the sit and wrestle in our hearts, even as we go out into this week, praying this in your precious and awesome name. Amen.